On episode 270 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to become a tough competitor, reduce errors, and forget about losing with legendary tennis player and coach, Brad Gilbert. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Now, before we start this episode, I've got a super cool serve drill to share with you today about something called twist rotation. If you're just bending your knees when you serve, but not twisting back and down, then you're easily leaving 5 to 10 miles per hour on the table. The best part of this drill is that you don't need to hit a ball to try it. It's living room safe. All you need is a few tennis balls. To check out the drill, go to tennisfiles.com crush it. Once you go to that link, you'll learn the twist rotation drill. And while you're there, I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of Crush It from my friend Will Hamilton at Fuzzy Yellow Balls. Crush It will show you 26 drills that allows you to generate power from your entire body so that you can hit your serve, forehand, and backhand much, much harder. To check out the drill, go to tennisfiles.com slash crush it. That's T-E-N-N-I-S-F-I-L-E-S dot com slash C-R-U-S-H-I-T. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the show. I'm really excited to have on Brad Gilbert, who, as many of you know, reached number four in the world and coached amazing (laughs) professional tennis players such as Andre Agassi, Andy Roddick, Andy Murray, Kane Shikori, and the list goes on. And it was super cool because Brad came to the Junior Tennis Champions Center here in Maryland a couple of weeks ago now from the date of this recording of the intro at least and i was able to go up to him and you know ask if he could come on the podcast and he seemed receptive and then big shout out to Harry Tong from Tennis Spin um because i did email Harry and ask if he could provide an introduction as well um since Harry as you know works and manages um Brad Gilbert's tennis shop in Cali so Brad was gracious enough to grant my request, and we recorded this interview, which again, really excited for you to listen to because we go into a lot of great topics, uh, such as how to develop a no-quit relentlessness, how to have short-term memory loss, like Serena Williams and Roger Federer. Um, We talk about visualization, how you can reduce errors, which is huge, and how to just overall become a tough competitor. and. His uh, advice really helped as I put on my Instagram story, which is probably expired by now, but I actually had Ninomix double sectionals this past weekend, and I won both my matches, including one match where I was down 6-4-4-1. And so to be totally honest, at that point, I was trying to think of what to do, and I remembered my interview with Brad, which I had done, you know, a few days before that that tournament um, happened, and I just remembered the lessons that he gave me, and just really the main point of just finding a way to win, to that winning ugly, um, you know, is the way to go. A lot of the time, you're not playing your best, but you need to find a way to win. And I just kept really mentally tough, and number one of all was just believing that I could win, because it's so easy when you're down like that to just kind of give up and say, well, I guess it's not going my way, but I had that extra kick in the front of my pants, if you will, from thinking about Brad and, and, you know, just his overall philosophy on tennis. And I was actually binge listening to his podcast as well. We'll have a link to that with his son and some great guests like Darren Cahill, I remember was one guest and Vince Van Patten was another guest, um, those interviews I listened to. And yeah, I also thought about my, um, uh, so I am a, a fan of Tottenham Hotspurs which is a English Premier League team and our coach is Antonio Conte. And I just thought of him 
saying uh, we need to get the three points. You know, he's uh, Italian, so I'm not the best Italian accent uh, person. Uh, wow, I don't know if we need to cut that. I mean, uh, preface that by saying this by saying I love Italians. I didn't mean any harm by that horrible accent, but I definitely brought that out that accent when we were having. Uh, lunch at Sergio. So shout out to my team uh, when we went there. But yeah, I just thought of, you know, those two coaches, uh, mainly Brad, and just that you need to find a way to win. Exploit your opponent's weaknesses using your strengths. And that's the way to do it. So, and we won in the third to tie break and was just super stoked that, um, you know, I can go back in the bag, you know, that I have developed here where if I'm down again, I can just remember, you know what, I've been down pretty far and I've come back and, um, you know, it makes a huge difference when you can listen to coaches like Brad, um, epic legendary coaches, uh, and, you know, him talk about his experiences playing and coaching, of course. And, you know, his book winning ugly is like one of the, the most famous, if not the most famous book of all time in for tennis players. So with that, I know you're anxious to hear the interview and without further ado, here is my interview with Brad Gilbert. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast. It's really a pleasure and an honor to have on Brad Gilbert uh, on the show. Uh, he needs no introduction, even though in, a, you know, in the intro I, I mentioned uh, all his accolades. But uh, yeah, Brad, it's just great to have you on. And thank you so much for being here. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. And it's it's really cool. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd uh, seen you briefly at the JTCC uh, uh, Center. Um, they do a great job there. Um, and you did a fantastic Q&A. And then I was lucky enough to be able to come up to you. And, and you so graciously agreed to come to the podcast. So I have a lot of questions. I was talking to my friends, too, and they were really excited and had <laughs> questions they wanted me to ask you as well. But um and before that, too, uh, my dad's a huge fan of yours as well because he's Iranian. And so he was a mega fan of, of Andre, obviously, and uh, just saw you, you know, all the time on TV. But I want to start with a quote from from your book, from Winning Ugly, which is an iconic book. You know, that along with Inner Game of Tennis, far and away are the two most recommended books from my podcast guests. And uh, this was one of the best quotes I ever heard, um, a comment from somebody in the audience. They said, how in the hell does this guy win? He hits like a caveman who found a tennis racket. So, who is this person talking about? And maybe if you could give us some more context. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where that came from. Um, <laughs> I don't like to think my strokes were that ugly, you know, by any means. Um, but it's still pretty amazing that 32 years later, or something like that, when we did the book, that it's still pretty relevant. That that that's a pretty cool thing. And I've had so many people come up to me and tell me, you know how much the book is meant to them. And so that's always a cool thing. So, I, you know, I love the, 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 the whole thing about winning ugly and it was done basically to help, you know, club players and juniors, um, you know, try to maximize their, their potential instead of, you know, what you learn sometimes just in a lesson. Yeah. Yeah. And I just absolutely love it that, you know, you reference club players so often in that. And that's, you know, that's what we're, that's who we are, you know, most of us. And um, it's not like, you know, Nadal's writing a book about like his, you know, amazing shots. I mean, it was <laughs> my most, my most ex um, amazing learning experience with Steve, who had never written before, mm. um, was when we were having lunch one day at the club and I was starting to study club players. The two guys that he played against were were down below. Mm. And I was watching the two guys that he played. And within five minutes, he played these two guys, he said, for 15, 20 years regularly. And within five minutes, he was, he was surprised and shocked that I could break down their strengths <laughs> and weaknesses. And he didn't even know them. It's like, how do you play these guys and not know their strengths and weaknesses? So that's when I knew, okay, there's, you know, we can figure some things out here. Yeah, hundred percent, Brad. You know, it's funny you mentioned that when I was a junior, especially, um, I would just react. I wouldn't be thinking at all about strengths, weaknesses. And then, you know, after interviewing you and, and amazing uh, other coaches and players like that, that's when I really, the gears got going, trying able to recognize, you know, patterns and things like that and weaknesses and such. Um, so, 
as far as developing, you know, one of the things that stood out um, that you find in Nadal and Djokovic and a lot of the great players is uh, developing a no-quit relentlessness, as you put it in your book. So I was wondering, how do you develop that sort of attitude? I mean, it, it can't just come out from thin air, right? Uh, I mean, everybody has a different DNA. But obviously, I mean, the greatest, you know, fortitude for tennis is you know, your ability to compete, your ability to, you know, make clear decisions when things are at the highest stakes. Sometimes, like, you see greatness. Um, when the match is five all in the third, you know, they're not panicking. They're making good decisions. They're thinking about what they're doing. They're actually, you know, more level-headed about what's happening. Things aren't going fast for them. And a lot of times for a lot of players, things are speeding up. Sometimes your decision-making is affected by the score. Yeah. Yeah, no, hundred percent, Brad. And you know, I was I was binge watching or binge listening to your uh, you know podcast that you had uh, with your son, which was really cool. A lot of great info in there. Um, and you know, one thing that really stood out was you mentioned, I believe, that you know when you were working with Andy Murray, there were like nine matches in a row or something like that where he was up five four um, in a set and he got broken. And I was wondering if you could let us know about the fix for for that. Um, you know, what, what, what did you tell him, you know, how did he get through it? Cause a lot of club players go through the same thing. It seems like we get to match point, we get to, you know, break points and we just don't convert at all. Yeah, so that, that was in the summer of 2006 when we started together and it was incredible how many times he would serve for a set, serve for a match. And it was almost like he willed himself or you knew what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And this is what does happen to club players and juniors a lot because we get in our head that we've done this before. We're going to do it again. It's more about the first point. What are we going to execute on our first serve? At that point, Andy, you know, wasn't obviously the player that he became. And there were some, you know, we would talk about a lot of times, you know, you know, that first point or what you can do, play to your strengths, you know, focus on your opponent's weakness. Sometimes it's, you know, you know, it's finding that balance for a club player and being too aggressive or, you know, hoping that your opponent is just going to miss. So that is the balance between club players and pros. But I also feel like I used to always tell myself when, if I was serving four or five, four, I was, you know, four or five down. It's yeah. funny when I tried that with Andre, he said, that stupid trick yeah. don't work on me. I know I'm five, four up. You get, you tell yourself you're down. Um, but believe it or not, a lot of players do play better when they when they're down or they think they're up against it. But I call more most importantly, at least for club players, is making good decisions. What's the strength of your game? What's the weakness of your game? And try to win with the strength of your game. If something's been working, keep doing it. Yeah, for sure. And and it really is, uh, you know, very commendable how you're able to convince yourself about, you know, being down. And I know you have an episode with Vince Van Patten, who plays poker, and I, I love poker. He, he's a great commentator as well as former player, uh, tennis player. And uh, I feel like poker players, sometimes that's what they do, you know, when they're bluffing, uh, almost convince themselves like that they have a good hand when they don't. Um, but yeah, I mean... <laughs> What, um, how can we actually do that? Would you say, I mean, um, convince ourselves. Cause that's obviously key. Like if we don't, like your son said, if, if I tell myself that, but I don't really believe it, then it doesn't work. Well, you know, the most important thing is if we don't serve it out, it's not letting it magnify into umpteen. Mm. See mm -hmm. that that's also greatness. What, you know, sometimes people ask me, you know, about that. It's like, like great players don't have these bad runs of losing, you know, umpteen games in a row, opposed to like somebody else that's a middle pro or it's a college. Pro. That, that, that one bad game becomes three, five, seven. Um, and the big thing is, if we don't close it out, is how to hit that quick reset button. How not to, you know, because most people in the club, if they have 5-4-40-15, don't close it out. They lose the set 7-5. Yeah. They lose 7-5-6. They're still thinking about that one shot. So it's learning how to hit that reset button, that refresh button that like, okay, 
how did I get to the to this point where I'm ahead? Mm. How can I finish this point? What just happened here? What can I go back to? Um, uh, you, you know, an unbelievable, you, you know, watching Rafa at the U.S. Open, a match that he was unbelievably struggling with against Fanini. Mm-hmm. Most guys have already lost that match, but mm. it's his competitive spirit that probably goes back to all the way that he was a kid that he keeps fighting. He keeps, you know, f- trying to figure something out. And he is the ultimate, too, that if he's 5-0 up or 5-0 down, you don't know it. Yeah. He also lost the first set, first round to uh, Ricky Hajita. Hajita. And then same thing. He doesn't let that affect him, that that one set becomes two sets, how it becomes more. He, he you know... He just keeps competing. And I do feel like a lot of players, a bad run isn't just one game. It's three games. If I, you know, next thing you know, it was you were three zero up and now you're six four, four zero down. You know, how do you stop that bad run? But most importantly, get back to what was working. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of club players and juniors go away from what's working or one game you know, sets off these five other matches. I did this, or, you know, it's that negative thoughts that all of a sudden start entering your head. You you know, it's tougher said than done, but you got to let that go. Focus on the next game. What's working? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Cause you know, my, my question for you was going to ask, you know, how to, how to reset, but you you talk about like trying to figure out what has been working and go back to that. Um, that that's really huge. So another, you know, I guess probably a tough question is, you know, how do you develop that competitiveness, especially for people who like you mentioned Rafa probably developed that from a young age, but you know, how about for club level players who, you know, they probably caught the tennis bug late and then now they're all into it. You know, I have friends like this, like, they just started a couple of years ago and they're playing like six, seven times a week. And, but they want to become, I guess, more competitive and gritty. So at a later age, especially, how do you think, uh, what techniques or, or training or exercises can we do to like develop our competitiveness more? It's a good question, but you know, I feel like competing, you know, even when you're practicing, whether or not, if you're working in a group or you're doing drills or you're playing a practice set, when you, um, uh, you know, play matches. Okay. They count for a reason, but, but I, I feel like you're playing more, mm. you know, if you're playing, you know, one league, it's two leagues, it's mm. three leagues, and, but it's keep competing. Cause the best way to work on your competing at that level is compete, you know, and then also try to add to your game. Okay. My second serve is a little bit weak. Steve, I can improve my second serve. What's my one to chop my forehand. Or my weakness is my backhand. Try to minimize that. You know, it's always something trying to add to your game, you know, which helps. But competing is, you know, something that some people will say, geez, it's a piece of cake in practice. I can't do it in the match. It's vice versa. I can do it. I feel like every time you're out there, you know, it's a good opportunity to compete. But match play is where you learn it. And, you know, you got to keep doing it more if you can more is better than less. Yeah, definitely. Just getting in that that in same environment where you're trying to succeed, which is, you know, serious <laughs> match play tournament and whatnot. Um, so kind of switching topics a little bit. Um, when I interviewed James Blake, he mentioned that before every match, he would visualize like specific points and like how he would play them and, and such. And, and he said that that helped him a lot. I was curious, like what your approach is, um, you know, regarding that, would you do that type of visualization and, you know, any other sorts of like pre-match um, preparation that you might think would be helpful for club level players? You know, it's funny as uh, like when I was a kid and when I play, I call it back in the stone ages, <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, we didn't have the computer and we didn't have going to YouTube and visualize, you know, I would always just, you know, heck, we didn't have a phone, you know, uh, I mean, I would make some notes, sometimes look at some notes uh, of things that maybe I've written about, especially when I was probably, I started doing a lot more in college in my early pro career when I was traveling by myself, when I would watch players play, a lot of times I would always make notes about players' strengths and weaknesses. Mm. And then 
sometimes that you know you you're playing somebody you you take a look at such and such got a great wide serve you know backhand maybe breaks down try to just kind of look up you know i always would think more about my opponent's strengths and weaknesses and what i would try to you know maneuver to make them happen for me so i always thought you know but i was most surprised when i was in college that how many players that that I played with in college would worry so much about the result, mm-hmm. almost panic about the result before it would happen. And I was always being like, are you fucking kidding? Why are you so worried about, you know, losing? Or if I lose today, they would always enter. And it's like, no, just focus on what you need to do mm-hmm. to be successful, what you're trying to do. I never think about losing. I never like would tell myself if I do X, Y, and Z, would guarantee I would win either. But I certainly wouldn't want to think about that fear of losing. It, it, it ultimately can happen. But I think worrying about it, and I was surprised how many players worried about that. And actually, probably it made me better because I actually didn't worry about it, didn't panic about it. Maybe I didn't feel good about it playing Lendo, but other, you know, you, if you feel like, okay, you know what? I've, I've worked hard. I've practiced hard. It's no guarantee I'm going to win, but I'm going to think about the positive. I'm going to think about it. You know, I'm going to sort of wide do his forehand. I'm going to attack his backhand. You know, so I just think about the little strengths and weaknesses that you could control, not think about losing, you know. And I, I also feel like too many people would think, but if I do this, this, and that, I'm going to win. I deserve to win. Mm. You know, a lot of people, oh, I deserve to win. Why do you deserve to win? What doesn't your opponent deserve to win as well? So I think these things that you can control, and I do think the thing I call is really important, all levels, short-term memory loss. Yeah. Let it go. And don't let when you've blown up a match that next time that's all you think about. That because you blew one match doesn't mean you're gonna blow five or six. I always feel like if you got into the winning position, you're doing something right. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and and yeah, I guess a bit more on that. Like, say when you've you've blown a match, um, and I know you, you talked about this with Serena as well, like having a three setter, and you know um, the way that she reacted is like incredible, as as opposed to people getting destroyed from losing a close match. But yeah, how do you like? How do you react? You know, because you know it, it's ingrained in a lot of people. Like when they lose a tough match, like they're just so down. So, what's your immediate advice? Like, what should we think about next? Okay, everybody's different on how they process it, but but most importantly is the short term is, you know, you know, what are we going to do about practice? What are we going to do about okay. getting ready and okay. start focusing on what's upcoming? Yeah. You know, um and now with YouTube and getting matches, players can, you know, and their coaches, even club players can take a look at some of their decision making. There's some of these apps now that if you, you know, hang your phone up. I see club players doing it, that you can look at some of your decision-making. I think this can be helpful. Sometimes it also can make you crazy, (laughs) but I think more than anything is letting go what happened. Try to think about, there was some positives there. Let's work hard and get after the next one. But I I think attitude is really important, you know, in being able to get stuff and move on. Yeah, yeah, most definitely, Brad. Uh, and, and also, I'd like to tell you, you know, listen, I, I remind the players, you know, me and my, we don't always have all the answers. There's nothing guaranteed. But you know what? Having a good attitude and just being able to get back out there next time and try and compete and try to have like an empty canvas mm. where you don't have this like doom is going to happen again. Right, right. Hundred percent, Brad. Um, kind of switching a little bit for a moment to the tactical part of things. I was wondering, um, and you, you know, you talk about this how sometimes club players have it in reverse, where you know when they're in like a a tough spot, they're like on the run. That's when they go for the big shot, and then you know when the ball's in the middle of the court, short ball. That's you know they end up pushing it. But I was wondering how how can what are a couple of strategies or tactics for players, club level players, to reduce the amount of errors that they make. Cause you know, you, t- you have 
Craig O'Shaughnessy, I've, I've interviewed a few times too. He talks about how like 70% or so uh, of points end in errors and things like that. So what are some ways we can reduce errors without pushing the ball? Uh, it, uh, well, first of all, I see more f- from the three five four zero in the center of the court where terrible. Good spacing, and they don't get you know their arm enough away from their body mm-hmm. where they can even take a good swing. And also, too, from the middle of the court, you know, a lot of players relax for a second. They they hit that pause button. Oh, I'm okay here, but no, they're not proactive with their feet. Don't get the spacing, and then they can't get aggressive. And a lot of times the ball ends up playing them, you know. So that is an area, you know, you want to watch Rafa, watch Fed, watch their feet, watch Serena when the ball is hit down the middle. Watch how they do those little pitter-patter, you know, steps to create space. They don't waste time even though they have time. So I do think that's one area, and you can practice that. Like with a ball machine, maybe, you know, having a bunch of balls hit down the middle, have a couple of seconds pause in between each one and really work on your forehand down the middle of the court, opening up the court. I could take the lead to the left or the right. And I also feel like a lot of players just overestimate maybe their skills when they're on the run a little bit. I call it, they're going for one in 10, one in 20 winners. You know, that's when maybe as Craig says, errors kill you. Mm. But you don't get three or four points for a screaming winner when you're on the run. We're not Djokovic. You know, we're not Nadal. We're not these great players that can do things on the run. So be sensible. Every once in a while, you got a 40 love lead to work with. I understand pulling the trigger. But other than that, try to stay in the point. And also feel like, too, if you do have decent spacing, don't fear the middle shot. And then that's the time to be aggressive. That's actually the chance that, you know, that maybe I have a chance to do something, especially like on a weak second serve. Just pick a big target and go for a big shot. I say, mm-hmm. you know, don't aim for anywhere near the lines, maybe a four by four box, go aggressive, big target. Got it. Beautiful. Great stuff there. Appreciate it. Um, and Brad, uh, another topic um, that I came across, I'm trying to remember if it was on your podcast or in, in the book, but uh, you talk about how to set a series of small goals. Um, so I was wondering, you know, um, what's the optimal way for us to set goals as club level players, do you think, so that we can, you know, progress um, it, with, and add to our toolkit without putting too much pressure so that we just think about the results all the time? Okay, you, you know, a big goal, let, let's say if you're a 3-0, is to get to three five. A three five, you get to a four zero. You know, and it and it comes by obviously winning matches and improving your game. You know, like I would always set if I'm going to play five tournaments. Maybe if, instead of thinking I'm going to win this, this, that, I would set a number. Set, let's see if I can win. You know, seventeen matches. You know, start with a small goal like that. So okay, so let let's see what my record was last year. If I was 12 and 8 in doubles, let's see if I can go 14 and 6. You know, if I was 11 and 7 in singles, let's see if I can go, you know, 13 and 5. Let's see if I can improve my my serve, you know, just a little bit and my return. Just small little things. But whatever you did, you just try to set it a little bit more. Say, you know, this year I'm going to really add, you know, my forehand you know, being a little more aggressive from the center court. I really want to work on my second serve. I, I do think at some point during the year, you you know, for all players, we can take maybe one month block to where we're, okay, I'm really going to put a little, you know, I'm not going to just work on my second serve or just work on my return, but I'm going to put a little period of time where I'm going to really just put an emphasis on this one shot I want to try to improve and add that into my practice or at the end of my practice every time. Yeah, that's that's great advice. Uh, thanks for that, and definitely hope you all are <laughs> taking notes on this uh, this interview here. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of '90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and. Purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Um, 
What are, um, and you did talk about this a little bit, um, but what are the most common couple, uh, two to three tells that you can commonly observe from your opponents? And then give us some tips on maybe like how to specifically observe, because I know especially for newer players or, or lower level ones, they may not be able to spot these things so easily. Um, you know, sometimes for club players, it's like if you never played with somebody, as soon as you start hitting the ball down the middle of the court, mm. kind of get an idea. Are they, are they cheating over on the forehand? Are they cheating over on the backhand? Um, does the ball toss, you know, drift left? You know, a lot of balls, are, then they maybe can't, you know, you know, serve wide. You know, di- uh, little things that I always look for is how, you, you know, instantly if you see something that's a weaker shot. Got it. You yeah. know, if all of a sudden you see something, you know, on the pro level, if it looks a little bit strange, it might not be as much of a weakness. But on the club level, if you see something that looks like kind of a funny hitch in the swing or it, it, it doesn't look right, that's the side you probably want to find a little bit more. Yeah. So the tells are there, you know, a lot of times from the ball toss. Um, but, you know, the big one, you know, you see someone cheating over forehand, backhand, footwork. They're there. You just have to look for them. I call them the little hidden gems. (laughs) Yeah, they can definitely be gems, make the big difference, you know, between winning or losing. You know, a lot of these matches just come down to a point or two. And, you know, these uh, USA League matches always go to like a third set tie break. So every little point or every point counts. Um, A little bit of a perhaps a selfish question, Brad, just because I have... um, uh, mixed double sectionals coming up. I'm leaving tonight for it. Um, but what is the optimal mindset going into a tournament? You know, before your tournaments, like what was your, you know, what were you thinking about? Like, um, yeah, just the mindset part of it. Well, what's probably most important in, in, in mixed, you know, same like doubles is communication on middle. Mm. You know, who, you know, especially on volleys, who's got the better forehand volley? Are you on the forehand side of the court? You know, who's who's taking overheads when we're both back? Is the male way stronger than the female? What's the communication? Do you want him, you know, or the females better? Do you want her to take more shots? So I, I think that, you know, to maximize is understanding the middle of the court. You know, you know, sometimes if there's an overhead and you guys are both looking to take it or the high volley, is there a clear decision on who's taking it? Because a lot of times you do see in pro mixed doubles, the guy trying to take a few more balls, but you kind of be careful that you don't play the whole side of the court because you leave a, a big part of the court open. So it's knowing that communication together and knowing your team's strengths. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank you, Brad. I'll definitely uh, communicate with my partner for sure on that before the matches. Um, so another thing that you talked about on, on <clears throat> your podcast was, um, the perfection trap. Um, so, and I guess we kind of touched on this a little bit, but um, maybe expound upon it if you can, just, you know, what that is and then how we can uh, avoid it. <laughs> uh, it. It's funny is I saw some kids just at the JTCC, mm. which by the way, is an amazing place. Yeah. So many kids, I call it the pursuit of perfection doesn't exist. It just makes them miserable chasing it. They're always, you know, thinking about the point could be better or I could do this better or, you know, it, it, it's a tough solution when, when you always think that it could be better and you got to learn to be satisfied. You know, a lot of times in tennis, you just got to be a few points better than, than your opponent Mm -hmm. to win. And when you're chasing to be perfect, it can be really, you know, it can make you crazy, you know? So I, I, I learned this from Andre because, you know, obviously he grew up with no matter what the score was, it could have been better. And I would always tell him, listen, if you win 6-4, 6-4, you move on. You know, gives yourself the opportunity to play tomorrow. And sometimes you can be really good and lose. Sometimes you can be pretty shitty and win. That's, the, you know, whoever you're playing against. That's how it is. And opponents do matter. Um, but you got to learn that to, to, you know, if I won four and four, it's a good thing. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, you talk about, um, I think I was listening to you talk about how 
Andre had had won a three set match. I forget who it was. It might have been Wheaton, where he was like actually upset, and you tell him that no, this is like you. This is giving you the opportunity to like progress farther in the tournament. And then he won that, and then he, you know, he, he had a great year. I think so. You, you know, it, it was a weird match in that it was a huge win in two, uh, 1994 Canada second round beating Wheaton, who he had struggled with a little bit. Six and a third, a long third set breaker. He said he had lost a couple of close matches. And I felt like first round, you, you know, he'd beaten somebody easy, you know, and, you know, he was pumped about that. But it was this match I felt like that he got through that was the impetus that all of a sudden gave him a chance to play tomorrow instead of being miserable as I do. Got a chance to play tomorrow. There's good things that can happen. Had you lost this match, you know, you're done. If you talk yourself into, I'm going to play terrible the next day, you're going to lose. But the greatness of winning a match, winning ugly like that, is gives yourself an opportunity to compete tomorrow, and tomorrow's a different match, so you don't know how it will play out. But getting through this match was a massive match for him that, you know, I kept explaining it. And as it turned out, you know, he won the tournament and then won the Open a few weeks later. So I always point to that one match can change a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's really, um, you know, great, you know, how you're able to, you know, think about things positively and and just, I guess, afford the best outlook for for your players and yourself as well. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, I was having dinner with a friend yesterday, uh, Luis, and he, he had mentioned a bunch of questions he wanted me to ask you, but I think this one's pretty interesting. So he mentioned Davis Cup singles um, uh, versus Mexico. I forgot if it was 82 or 83 and you played with Tim Mayett. Um, and then I think the opponents were Lavaje and Maciel. And he was intrigued because he mentioned that you would only arrive like the day before, you know, the first match. And it's like high altitude. Um, and and you still were able to like crush like the opponents. So he was just wondering, like, how how was it that you were able to to adjust so quickly in that different sort of um, uh, environment? <laughs> OK, first of all, in the 82, it was 86. 86. Oh, OK. Okay, yeah. So it was a long time ago. <laughs> how, the, how the heck does your friend know that I arrived one day uh, you know, before? Which is not true. We got there like five, six days before. Uh, okay. But I actually like to play in altitude because um, I, I played a bit in altitude when I was a kid. Mm. And I, I had this one quirk. Everybody, when they would play in altitude, it's funny, as I told this story to like Jim Courier, who he played his first Davis Cup in Mexico in 91 and he was struggling with the altitude. He was stringing his rackets at like 90 pounds and breaking the machine. He couldn't get there. I would be the only one. I would string my rackets way looser, mm. you know, because I figured if you, you string your rackets tighter, the ball's still going to fly. So let's say if I was playing with 60, I might string my rackets at 45 and then, you know, practice with it for three, four days same struggling in altitude with loose strings. And then maybe like the, the day of the match or the day before, I might string it five pounds tighter. Mm. And all of a sudden it's like, damn, things are feeling pretty good now. I can keep the ball in the court. But I think altitude is one of those things too, where you just tell yourself that I'm playing at sea level, I'm going to be fine. Or my opponent's going to struggle more. So I tend to always play better when the conditions were really lousy. When everything was great, everybody seemed like everything was good. Maybe it wasn't going to be as good. But if it was the worst wind or it was the worst place or it was altitude, seemed like it was always good for me because I could make something good about the situation that would be good for my game. But I definitely did not get there one day before. I was there at least five days before in Mexico City. Got it. Uh, I'm going to have to uh, give him some attitude for that. <laughs> but that's funny. But um, yeah, super uh, interesting um, you know, to hear about that experience. And yeah, I, you know, sometimes I have the same mindset too. It's great when you can have that, you know, where you're like, oh, the tougher the conditions are. I hope it's hot today. I hope it's windy because I, you know, I'm a grittier player and I can figure out, you know, how to win. And, and you know, some of the strengths of the opponent will be blunted. So that's always. Because uh, you, if you tell yourself that you're going to struggle in all those, <laughs> you're going to be in the shit. Yeah. So that that's what it is. Is that that's the little mind tricks you, that you you got to try to tell yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No. Hundred uh, percent. Love that. Um, 
And uh, in terms of, um, it's interesting, like inner game of tennis versus um, winning ugly. What, what are maybe a couple of the, you know, most important points that you found from inner game that maybe complement um, winning ugly? You know what's key about, you know, everything mm-hmm. is finding your own zen, finding your own balance. You take, it's like, you can't just take everything from one player and copy it. You know, you if you take a little bit of, of what you read from inner game or you, uh, a little bit from Winning Ugly or from an Alan Fox book or, 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 or any book, you know, nothing is all verbatim. And I, I think that's the greatness of learning is that you, 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 you learn from some of the things that he, he was, you know, getting into, you know, players' minds way back in the day when nobody knew about that. And I, I think that that's what is a cool thing. It's, it's like mine is a little bit different and everyone's a little different. And so I, I think having, a, you, you know, I didn't set out you know, trying to copy anybody else. I just try to, you know, be me. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's my strength, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, and, and my strength for winning ugly was studying club players. And I think that, you know, that can be lost that that a lot of times as a pro people only think that you can only see through the lenses of pros. I actually feel like, you know, after watching and really studying it, you know, besides being around the game my whole life, I had a good idea about it, about what they could do to get better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You sure do, Brad. (laughs) Um, what do you think are, I guess let's go with, with Andre Agassi and then, uh, with Murray, uh, uh, Andy Murray, what do you think for each of them is the biggest, like the biggest piece of advice that you gave each one? Um, maybe they're, hopefully they're different, but if, if they're the same, it's okay. That, that really help them accelerate their career. Do you think? It's funny, you know, looking back, I don't know that, you know, you know, that there's one thing, Okay. That, you know, sometimes there's things that click in, there's days that click in, there's events that click in. Um, and I think most importantly for me is that, as funny as I just told this to the JC, JTCC as well to the coaches. The most important thing for a coach is a coach can't have an off day. Mm, yeah. Players can have an off day. But coaches can't have off days. If if you're there on a bad attitude day as a coach and your players on a, you know, they're on a bad day, maybe that's that one day that you could have made a bigger difference. And it's having that positive attitude as a coach and always, you know, feeling like that, you know what, things are going to, they're going to turn. Um you know, the, the, there's the, there was matches sometimes, or things, or preparation, but I, I think more than anything, I just enjoy the process mm-hmm. of trying to help somebody fulfill their dreams. I, I get super motivated trying to do that. So I can't tell you that there's a keyword. You know, sometimes things work better with one player than they do another. Right. And a couple things that I learned early on from coaching to playing, I'm no longer looking through my own lens. I'm looking through what Andre can do. Mm. And when you're coaching the next player, you don't compare Andre to Andy to, to Andy. Every player has their own different strengths and individualities. A lot of football coaches have a one way to coach. This, this is my system. But what happens if you don't have the players to your system? So tennis players, you don't just, oh, I'm going to make you the next – each one of them is different. Right. So, and some, you know, with Andre, we could talk about strategy for three hours. Mm-hmm. He had a photographic memory. And erotic sometimes would be like mission impossible. <laughs> you know, after 10 seconds, this thing would implode. <laughs> so you have to be cognizant of that, that these guys are, and girls are different. Very important for the coach that, they understand you, but you're adapting to, you know, to their strengths and weaknesses. 
Yeah, most definitely. Great advice as usual, Brad. Um, one quick question about serving advice, just because it's such an important stroke, as you mentioned in the book, you know, the most important probably. From a strategy standpoint, um, uh, what's your best advice that you can give for us to hit, you know, have, you know, have a more higher percentage of, of holding our serve? All right, if you had 10 minutes a day to practice, I practice five minutes on my serve, five minutes on return. Mm. You know, every shot starts with a serve and return. Yeah. Um, and I think that with the serve, what a lot of club players don't understand is, is thinking about score. Score can dictate opportunity. If I got a 40 love lead, I could take a little more risk with my first and second. If I'm down love 35th, 30, I don't have scoreboard pressure. You know, then maybe I need to put my first serve in. I need to aim to bigger targets. And I also think that, you know, it, like you hear it a lot of times in, in pro tennis, like Derek Cahill would say, what's your working serve? You know, a working mm -hmm. serve that you can make three quarters of the time. You know, like let's say if you're a 120 server, can you just put the serve in every time at 108? So if you're a club player and, you know, maybe you want to take your second serve out of the equation, you know, on some big points. What's our working serve that we can put our first serve in play? Maybe it's going to take the opportunity to, to maybe hit a, a good first serve and win the point. But you know what? We'll, we'll be in the point, take our second serve out. Maybe our opponent misses a return. That's a numbers game. So I do think enough, uh, enough players don't put enough serves in play. And that's one serve that you should work on is a working serve, one that you can put in play under pressure. Awesome, Brad. Well, uh, look, I, I really need everybody, to, if you're listening, to get Winning Ugly, if you haven't yet. Amazing book, strategy is the one part, um, you know, that you can immediately implement and, you know, have success, you know, like technique where it takes a, a while, uh, depending on what you're changing um, and fitness, you got to build up. Technique takes a lot sometimes for, club, you know, to make a big technical change, you know, listen, if you have to, you do, but it can take time. It can yeah. be frustrating. But little changes, you know, strategy-wise and thinking out there on the court, sometimes you got to be your own coach. Yeah. But Craig told you, under 4-0, unforced errors lose almost 99% of the matches. So put balls in play. Winning ugly is fun. It, it, it sure is. I take winning ugly any day of the week over, you know, losing pretty. And yeah, same thing with my, my favorite, uh, soccer team, Tottenham Hotspur, our, our coach, uh, he's a great coach, but we're, we're winning ugly like every week, but we're still winning. So I'll take it. Um, but Brad, um, last thing is where, um, where can people follow you? I know you, I know you're busy and you have a lot of things to do today. So where can people follow you, um, to check out what you're doing, you know, uh, you know, message you, whatever, um, just see what, you, what you're up to. I, I'm on Twitter. Um, BG tennis nation. Yeah. Um, that's what I do most. Um, I used to have this podcast with my son, but he's too busy now. Oh. Hopefully we're going to get that. Back. We're going to start that back going. But unfortunately, he's been too busy, you know, uh, director of tennis. You know, obviously I'm on ESPN. Um, but the, that's where you can see me. Twitter is where I'm most active. Sounds good, Brad. Well, um, ESPN, yeah. you know, just, I'm just a life for tennis dude, you know that you'll see no matter where I'm at, if I'm, if I'm on the tennis court, it's a better day. I went this morning already, already on the way. So it's nine twelve. I drove from my house. At, I left at like five thirty seven. got to Pepperdine six o'clock in the morning. The sunrise was just coming up. I had 30 minutes on the wall. Love it. Yeah. Love that. Love that. Started my day in the right note. So no matter what happens the rest of the day, it's already been a good day. That's right. That's right. And uh, any any cool nicknames of tennis players that you hear? They're all from Brad. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, of course, Brad. Well, Brad, thank you so much. Uh, we've learned a lot today, and I can't thank you enough for your time. So good to... luck on this on the upcoming doubles trip. Thank you. And listen, and tell yourself, no matter what, I'm going to have a great time, and we're going to just compete. We're going to have fun, and we're going to compete. That's right. That's the key. Just be grateful on the court, like you mentioned. Um, yeah. And listen, every day you get on the tennis court, you know, it's a better day. Keeps you fighting fit, keeps you mentally strong. And 
it's something that you can do forever. And so that that's the greatness of tennis. So that's why I feel like it's one of, you know, that you can just keep growing with. Yeah. So that's, that, that's probably one of my favorite things that even now at 61, I'm still, you know, I'm not going to be what I used to be, but I'm still having fun. Yeah, exactly. And learning life lessons is, you know, lessons you can apply to life as well through tennis. Um, great game. Cool. Well, um, Brad, again, thanks so much, everybody. Check out okay, enjoy, uh, Winning hey, Ugly. Good luck with the podcast, buddy. Thanks a lot. All right, Brad. Thank you so much. Bye. Take care. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with legendary coach and player Brad Gilbert. Thanks so much, Brad, for coming on to the show. And again, big shout out to Harry Tonk from Tennis Spin. Check out his YouTube channel for sure. Um, thank you for the hookup there. And yeah, if you enjoyed this episode and got value from it, then I would really, really, really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. I think we have well over 100 some ratings and reviews, I don't know, 120 or whatever it is. Um, But I would really appreciate yours because it really helps the show, uh, the podcast, uh, move up in the algorithm to help more people see it. And so you're doing a service to your fellow tennis players by simply leaving a review and letting me know what you think about the show and what you what I can do to improve it and what I'm doing well so that I can do more of that. And uh, hopefully I'm doing something well. <laughs> Fingers crossed. But yeah, thanks so much. And you can go to tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts with an S at the end. Or just leave a review in your favorite podcast app of choice that you use to listen to the show. Although leaving a review on Apple Podcasts definitely moves the needle the most. So just letting you know there. And I would like to leave a quote, as I often do at the end of every show, and this one is by actually Anonymous. I don't have a name, so sorry about that. But the quote is, if you want to fly, give up everything that weighs you down. Really love that one. And yeah, again, um, the, the show notes page is what you want to check out if you want to get the link to Brad's legendary book, Winning Ugly. I know I've said legendary a lot, but it really, really is, um, you know, his work and and the book. So great book and uh, links to that and, and other links that I mentioned in the show notes uh, it, in this show today will be on the show notes page um, at tennisfiles.com slash podcast. All right. Um, with that, thanks so much for listening. I have some more great interviews already recorded to release for you. So looking forward to doing that. So have a fantastic week and keep improving your tennis game and winning ugly and having that attitude of a tough competitor and i'll see you on the next episode of the tennis files podcast this is your host mirabana ranchad signing out